Indeed, we are daily a debtor to grace. Amen? Let's bow together in a word of prayer as we come to the word of God. Our loving Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that it is not dependent on anything that we have done or anything that we will do because we know our righteousness is as filthy rags, that we have nothing that we can claim before ourselves that we could cause your eye to turn towards us. We are unlovely in and of ourselves. We praise you this morning for the wonderful gospel of Christ that beautifies us, his children. I pray that this morning as we open your word, Lord, that you would speak to us through it, that you would help us to live more faithfully for Christ in these days. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Well, church, with this being our annual business meeting Sunday, it marks the beginning of our new ministry year as it does every year as we come around to this fourth Sunday in August. And I wanted to take this opportunity to share with you something that's been on my heart as I think about our church, as I think about us heading into a new ministry season, and as I think about us being faithful Christians in all the areas and walks of life that God has placed us. And it's essentially a message of preparation. We must be prepared as a church to live boldly and courageously for Christ, no matter the cost. No, no one knows what the future holds, at least on a human level. But we can watch the trajectory of our culture, and we can make some educated guesses about what's coming down the line. I believe that in our country, the gospel has never been more hated or despised as it is right now. The standards of God's word for family and for the society have been abandoned. And while this could be a cause for fear, and it is a cause for concern, but it doesn't need to be a cause for fear. In fact, it shouldn't surprise us that the world hates Christ and the gospel of Christ. In fact, it's this scenario that the New Testament prepares us for. The New Testament envisions Christianity being hated. And yet I believe most of the American evangelical church is not prepared for such a world. They're too desirous of being accepted by the unbelieving culture, too used to being comfortable in it. Now, like you, I grieve the loss, wherever it happens, of religious liberty and ungodliness that is adopted by our nation. And I believe we should do all that we can to push back against such unrighteousness. But we need to be prepared for things to either get better or worse. We need to be ready to be Christians in any and every circumstance. No matter where our culture goes, we must be a community of Christians who live courageously for Christ. And so I want to prepare us this morning by offering some principles found in the book of 1 Peter. And so I encourage you to turn there in your personal copy of God's Word to 1 Peter. If you don't have a copy, you can use a pew Bible that's directly in front of you if you're here in the worship center. Found on page 1203. 1203, you will find 1 Peter. Now, we are not going to be looking at any one passage in depth, but we need to have the book open and be able to flip the few pages that occupy the book in our Bibles because we're going to look at different passages throughout as we find some themes and some priorities of Peter. Peter wrote to Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire around AD 64 or 65. Around this time, the emperor Nero unleashed a vicious persecution upon the church. Therefore, these believers that this letter was addressed to uh, are finding themselves in 
a society that's hostile to their faith. And so as we consider that, consider the situation that these believers are found in, we want to ask the question, what did Peter write to these beleaguered Christians? To Christians in such a scenario, what did he prioritize? What did he emphasize to a church in the midst of a Christless world? And so this morning, as we survey and glean, and, and glean things from 1 Peter, we're going to see seven priorities, seven priorities for living in a society opposed to Christ. And I pray that as a community of Christ followers, that Foothill Bible Church would be characterized by these priorities now more than ever as we head into fall 2020. Let's look at the first priority that Peter lays out for us, and that is to embrace our identity. Embrace our identity. And we're going to see this in the first verse of the book. So if you're there, 1 Peter, you can see 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, as Christians, we often like to start with, what do I need to do? Okay, just give me some, some steps. Tell me what, how I need to live my life. But more fundamental to doing is being. Who are we before what are we to do? Identity precedes mission. And Peter knows this and starts his letter by reminding his readers and us by extension the identity and the status of believers. Here in 1 verse 1, notice what he calls his audience. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion or of those who are scattered. He calls them exiles. And he uses this terminology at other places in the book. Let your eyes scan down to chapter 1 verse 17. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And then chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So you see, he's got this theme running throughout his book, calling these Christians as exiles, as sojourners. But why exiles? Why exiles? They've, they could be scattered from their hometowns because of their faith. That's a possibility. But I think it's describing more reality, a theological truth. And it really recalls the nation of Israel. Right? What do we know from the, the Bible about exile? Well, we know that from the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, when they were disobedient to the Lord, they were exiled from their land because of disobedience. They were scattered among the nations. And so Peter here picks up on that language of exile and says, you as believers are scattered throughout the, nation, the nations, scattered throughout the world in these different regions. Peter's saying that, listen, you're not in your home. You're not home yet. You're an exile from your home, meaning that this, believe this world is not their home. They're exiles from where they truly belong. And this is a truth that we as believers need to recognize and embrace today, is that our status today is that of exiles and sojourners. That this world is not our home. That this is not our ultimate place of residence. We are just passing through. We are sojourners. We are traveling along. And there is a destination that we are seeking to reach, and that is heaven with our Lord. Amen? That is home. That is where we belong. That is where our identity ultimately is, is with the Lord we are his children. Peter highlights this in, in chapter 1, verse 4, where he says that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We have something awaiting us, and that is a home with our Lord and Savior. 
He says in chapter 1, verse 13, that we're to set our hope, set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We look to a future time of, of, of reconciliation, of, of restoration, of, of being brought together with our Lord in which we will be brought into full fellowship and be brought home. You see, most fundamentally, Christians are those who have been saved and set apart by God himself. We are exiles. We belong in heaven because God has redeemed us. Our identity is found in him, not in this world, not first and foremost a citizen of this nation, but first and foremost a citizen of heaven. Now Peter makes this clear by calling them elect exiles. Notice that in 1 verse 1. To those who are elect exiles. Elect means chosen, selected, set apart. And this is a privileged status for the church. We have been elected, we've been chosen by the God of this universe. A world that despises us, but a God that accepts us, that elects us, that chooses us. Peter goes on to describe what goes on in this election, what goes on in this choosing of, of God's children. Look in verse 2 of chapter 1. They are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Notice, first of all, the three members of the Trinity, three members of the Godhead, the God, which we can, God the Father, and the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. All members of the Godhead are involved in our salvation, in our election, in our setting apart, according to the foreknowledge of God. Before you were born, God knew and had a plan for your life to make you a child of His. Before you thought of God, He had you in mind. Now, he says, also in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who sanctifies us, and this happens at the point of conversion. Sanctification meaning to be set apart from. And so we are set apart from the world. We're set apart from our sin unto God. It's not only a set apart from what we are, are leaving, but it's also unto the Lord. We're being sanctified, being pulled away from the world and unto God. And that happens by the power of the Spirit. He is he did that at the moment of conversion, and he's still doing that. He's at work in us. That's what we call sanctification, the process that's taking place in our lives each and every day to make us more like Christ. It's sanctification in the Spirit, set apart and continually made holy. But not only is it according to the foreknowledge of God and in the sanctification of the Spirit, but our salvation is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling it with his blood. He centers on Christ. That's for obedience to Jesus. We were saved for obedience to our Lord. We are his servants and we follow his instructions. He is Lord over our lives. We are to obey him. And as he says, our salvation is for sprinkling with his blood. We've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. The blood that was shed on Calvary is there for us to be sanctified, for us to be cleansed. That is why we are elect exiles. We are elect exiles because the Godhead, God, Father, three in one, has worked to save us, to set us apart, and to make us his own. And folks, this is the good news of the gospel, that God has not left us in our sin, that he has not allowed us to continue on in our rebellion but he said he decided to place his love upon us. In eternity past, he chose us in his foreknowledge to place his love upon us. Knowing the rebellion that we would have, knowing the sin that we would commit, and yet he chose us. Not because of anything good in us. Not by works that we have done in righteousness, but simply because of his loving kindness. Jesus shed his blood upon the cross so that we might be saved. The Spirit transforms our hearts and our lives so that we now hate what we once loved and we love what we once hated. The transformation is happening. And so we need to be reminded this 
offer of the gospel, this offer of cleansing and forgiveness is offered to all. Every single person who is alive today has the opportunity to respond to God's gift of salvation. And so if you're hearing my voice this morning and you have not bent the knee to Christ, you have not submitted to Jesus, and you have not been cleansed of your sin, and you do not know the joy and the freedom of forgiveness, it's available to you today. Simply repent to turn right where you're at and cry out to God and say, God, save me. Forgive me for my rebellion. Forgive me for my sin. And you can go home forgiven today. That is the good news, the message of the Bible, that if you hear nothing else, you must hear that, that there is salvation offered to all. If we would but repent. Church, we must first embrace our identity, that we don't belong here, that this is not our home, that we are sojourners and exiles. We're waiting for our ultimate home in heaven, we cannot be too tied down here. We cannot have all of our hope placed in this life. Our joy cannot be wrapped up in what this world and this nation has to offer. Our joy and our hope must be wrapped up in what God offers us in Christ because that is imperishable and undefiled and waiting for us in heaven. This world will disappoint, but heaven never will. This world fails to satisfy our deepest longings, but heaven will satisfy us completely. So we must first embrace our identity as sojourners. The second principle that we see here in the book of 1 Peter is that we must engage our minds. Engage our minds. Now we live in a mindless age. Entertainment and social media want us to not stop and think about what we're doing and how we're living. They don't want us to think about this world, think about the deep things of life. In fact, most of us can't read anything for an extended period of time because our attention spans have been so affected. We can't think, much less read, anything deep and serious. The internet has shallowed our thinking. And today, on top of that, people are driven more by their emotions than anything else. And they believe that if they feel it, if it rises up within them, then it must be right. And so they just learn going around emoting everywhere and thinking that they're declaring truth claims, but they're just emoting louder and louder. We're experiencing a generation that has followed Disney's advice to simply follow your heart and trust your heart. But in contrast with the emotivism of this age, believers in Jesus Christ are called to engage our minds. We cannot fall asleep on the job. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Verse 13. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that we are to prepare our minds for action. This, in the original, this is the, is actually says to gird up the loins of your mind. And it speaks to a soldier who's gathering up his tunic to get ready to prepare for battle, to be able to run into battle. Therefore, the illustration is that we, as Christians, cannot have anything that's sloppy, anything that's hanging loose among us that might trip us up in our following after Christ. We must deal with all those things, preparing our minds, being sharp, being sober-minded. We cannot be mentally lazy. Christians must be sharp, thinking, sharp thinkers, evaluating all things according to the Word of God, not just mindlessly reading and intaking things. Unfortunately, many Christians have settled into the frenetic pace of life that they don't ever stop to think about things and they simply end up relaxing or taking a pause by vegging through social media or Netflix or whatever else the distraction is. But this ought not to be so. We've got to prepare our minds for action and be sober-minded in this age as we seek to live faithfully for Jesus Christ. To be sober-minded, he says, means that we can't be mentally drunk Stooping, walking around in a stupor, moving around and not, not able to discern what's happening around us, not able to, to carefully control our thoughts and where we're supposed to act. 
Why do we need to be sober-minded? Why do we need to prepare our minds for action? This book gives us three things that are at stake if we don't. The first here in verse 13 is that our hope will be at stake. Our hope. Many people are without hope, losing hope. And yet Peter says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed. Have we received grace today? And in our past, amen and amen. But there is a grace that is yet still coming. A huge truckload of generous grace that God is waiting for us at the revelation of Christ. And Peter says, that is where our hope needs to be set. And if we're not preparing our minds for action, if we're not sober-minded, then we're not going to set our hope on that. We're going to set our hope on tomorrow, on the next gadget, on the next whatever it is. We're not going to be setting our hope on what's coming down the line because our world tells us that there is no future with Christ. The, this idea of heaven, that's all just a figment of your religious imagination to make you feel better. But we know from the word of God that it's true and we must set our hope fully upon it. But not only is our hope at stake if we don't prepare our minds, but secondly, flip over to chapter four, verse seven. Our prayers are at stake. Our prayers are at stake. Chapter four, verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Friends, if we're going to pray effectively, if we're going to pray in the urgent way that the Lord wants us to pray, we must be sober-minded. We must be self-controlled and pray how the Lord wants us to pray. Not praying that we would simply get this and that. Not praying simply for our own comfort, but praying for the priorities of Scripture. Praying for what God wants us to pray for. We want His priorities upon our hearts and we offer those back up in prayer to Him. Church, if we are not sober-minded, if we are not engaging our minds, our prayers will be sloppy and they will not be directed at what the Lord, where the Lord wants us to direct them. Finally, the third thing at stake if we don't prepare our minds is chapter 5, verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says then in verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Satan loves to use suffering in the lives of believers to derail their faith. And Peter says that if we're not watchful, if we're not alert, if we're not sober-minded, then we could find our faith dashed upon the rocks. That even though the devil cannot destroy the, the sideline or completely destroy the faith of a believer, he can sideline a believer. He can crush the hope in their faith. And so Peter says we need to be sober-minded and watchful to recognize we've got an enemy out there that's seeking to use the world system to bring suffering upon us to derail us. And so we must be sober-minded. Friends, if we're going to be salt and light in this world, then we must be sharp thinkers. We cannot simply move along with the stream of culture. Author Oz Guinness has written a book called Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. And I think this accurately describes much of the so-called evangelical church. Our minds must be exercised and trained to evaluate truth claims and to discern how we are to live. We must know the word of God. We must be prepared to defend it. We must spend time thinking about things that matter. There are ideas that float across our screens and uh, before our eyes every day that we must evaluate. There are claims even made by Christian leaders that we must investigate. Our minds cannot simply have an open door. We must filter all things and think soberly about the days in which we live. So church, let us engage our minds and prepare them for action. That's the second priority we get from 1 Peter. The third I want to draw our attention to this morning is to examine our lives. Examine our lives. This is a priority we see throughout the book of 1 Peter. Now with 
The church experiencing persecution, you'd think that Peter would come alongside as a nice comforting counselor and want to put his arm around these Christians and going, you're doing a great job. Just hang in there. And that he wouldn't really want to say anything that would disrupt them or that would be critical of them in any sort of way, but simply just want to do, be, emphasize the positive. And in general, he is giving them truth that is positive for them. But he doesn't avoid giving conviction. He doesn't avoid pointing out where these believers need to be growing in their walk with Christ. He emphasizes several times throughout the letter that believers must make it a priority to examine their lives. Looking into our hearts, looking into our behavior, looking into our thoughts, and, and, and seeing where there is sin and putting it to death and seeking to put on and live in holiness. In other words, the point is this, suffering in this world and even particularly persecution does not get us off the hook from seeking to live Christ-like lives. It must be a top-level priority, brothers and sisters, for us to be living lives that display Jesus Christ and give him glory. We must double down at seeking to root out sin and seeking to live for Jesus. I want you to see 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 14. Peter says this, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter says as obedient children, don't be conformed to those for, that former way of living that is just like the world, just like the Gentiles, as he calls it later on in the book but instead be holy as God is holy. We are to model our lives. We are to live our lives after our creator. God is holy, therefore his people must be holy. We are his children, therefore we must follow and obey him. As Paul says in Romans 12, we're not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. You see, Peter's concerned that the church would not look like the world. That the church would look like the church. That the bride of Christ would look like Christ. That is what we offer this world as we give them a portrait of Jesus in our lives. As we live differently, as we orient ourselves around the priorities of the word of God. And this isn't the only time he mentions it, to be holy. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Put these things away. They don't belong in the church. They don't belong in the lives of believers. We should not be using our mouths to slander one another. There should not be hypocrisy where we say one thing and we do another. We shouldn't be gripped with envy for others. And we shouldn't be living and acting with malice, trying to do others harm and evil. Instead, he says, verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter's saying, listen, church, you need to be growing up into Christ, growing up into your self-salvation, seeking to live out all that Christ has purchased for you at the cross. And so repent, set aside all of these behaviors that, that characterize the world and instead come to the word of God, drink it up, drink it deeply that you may be transformed and you might then be a witness to the world. He says, you have tasted that the Lord is good. He, he doesn't let the issue drop though. Look down in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good. You see, again, the church is to be abstaining from the passions of the flesh. But I want you to notice first here the connection between exiles and changed behavior. 
Remember we said that our identity is that of sojourners and exiles? He comes back to that here, and the direct implication from that is that we should be living differently. There should be different conduct, change behavior. If we truly are exiles and sojourners, then we must have different behavior. But he also brings up an important point that there are passions of the flesh, passions of our old nature, this sin nature that resides within each one of us, even those of us who are redeemed by Christ. We have been given the Spirit of God. We've been transformed, regenerated. But there's still the remnants of the old man, remnants of the sin nature within us that the Bible calls the flesh. And these passions, they are not seeking to help us to be more like Christ. They are pulling us the other way. They are passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. And so we're on a battle every day. Christian, we might be in a battle in our culture, in our society, but more fundamentally, there's a battle inside each one of us. A battle against the sin nature that, that is there deep within each one of our own hearts to corrupt, to sideline, to seek to get us to disobey Jesus. Yes, there might be temptations out there, but we must fundamentally recognize that there is something inside of us that is oriented and drawn towards those temptations. And that is what we are abstaining from. That is what we put to death in the power of the Spirit. That is what we cry out to God and say, God, help me to kill that sin nature within me. I hate it. I don't want to follow the passions of my flesh. I want to follow Jesus. I want to live holy and righteously. Please help me, Lord. We must embrace that. Peter says that we need to keep our conduct honorable among the unbelieving world. Our lives must be honorable. Now, it's true that unbelievers may not think our lives are honorable. They might claim that we're doing something unjust or unrighteous, and we may suffer for that, and he'll address that later. We don't have time to read it, but chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, talks about that if we live this way, if, we are, if our conduct is different from the world, then the world is going to wonder why we live differently. In fact, they're going to mock us for not carrying along and going along with what they do. Many of you have no doubt experienced that. You choose to live a different way. You choose to live by following Christ amongst your friends, coworkers, neighbors. And they don't get it. They don't understand it. And they may even mock you for it. Well, it's comforting to know that the Bible prepares us for that. That, oh yeah, that's envisioned. That if we follow Jesus, that this unbelieving world is not going to understand us. And yet we continue to follow Christ. Again, remember the context. These are believers in persecution. They're in deep pain, deep suffering. But it reminds us that no matter the amount of persecution or suffering or pain, there's never an excuse for sin in our lives. And friends, we must be dead set on seeking to root out the areas of sin and disobedience in our lives. Do not give the flesh a pass in your life. Do not allow those sinful passions to rise up and to control and dominate you. Live as an exile and a sojourner and abstain from the passions of the flesh. In the power of the Spirit, the Spirit is sanctifying you. He's there to provide the power to say no to sin. We must live for the glory of God. We must live for the will of God and not for our own will. We must be a holy community, a community set apart, living honorably before this watching world. And guys, we can have such a hard line on holiness. We can say that we must be a pure people, a holy people. And you go, oh, that's puritanical. Oh, that's, that's so ungracious and unloving. Friends, the Bible sets a high standard as we've read just in this book. But listen, the Bible calls us to that because we have such a merciful God. God doesn't stand back and say, okay, I want you to jump this high and we're all trying and we can't reach it and we all just feel like failures. No, God plucked us from our futile way of life. He dealt with sin upon the cross of Christ so that you and I can have victory today so that we can say no, so that we can turn away from the passions of our flesh. The Son of God died upon that cross to pay for every single sin that you have committed and will commit, and so that you can now live guilt-free. And the Spirit of God is at work in us every day, changing our desires away from sin 
and towards, help, towards Christ. And we can cry out for help anytime. We don't sin so that grace may abound, but when we do sin, we know grace does abound. And so we confess and we seek to obey. And we confess and we seek to obey. Friends, I know that's a weary task. Each and every day, every week, 365. But that is what God's word calls us to. And we support one another and we seek to battle together as we seek to help one another to live holy lives. So we need to examine ourselves, examine our hearts. Are you here today with unrepented sin in your life? Sin patterns that you have continued on for, for some time, maybe even has developed and picked up during this COVID season. I exhort you by the authority of the word of God to renounce and repent of that sin. Abstain from it, reject it, let go of it. Let today be the day where you say no further. The passions of the flesh are not gonna rule over me. I wanna follow Jesus. Talk to me, talk to one of the elders, your small group leader, get some help. We are a community of people that are seeking to help one another follow Jesus. We are all sinners saved by grace, seeking to help one another. So we need to embrace our identity. We need to engage our minds. We need to examine our lives. Fourth, we need to exhibit our faith. We need to exhibit our faith. It's interesting that in this letter, Peter doesn't tell the believers of the first century to protest, to overthrow the Roman government or to organize a mass campaign to change the society as a whole. As we just saw, he exhorts them to live honorably, to focus on their own lives, how they're living before the unbelieving world so that God would be glorified. But he also exhorts them to have the gospel ready upon their lips. Look in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are saved. We are the people of God, and we are done that so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. Friends, you have been saved so that your mouth might be opened and have upon your lips the excellencies of Jesus. That is what we need to have ready upon our lips in this unbelieving world. We need to be able to share not just of, of cold, hard truth claims, but we need to declare excellencies. How many great things can you list of Jesus? And, and are you ready to share those? That's what excellencies are, the wonderful perfections of Jesus. And let me suggest that if Jesus isn't excellent to you, if you don't see any excellencies in Jesus, then you need to examine your own position before the Lord. Do you truly know Jesus? Because for those whose eyes have been opened, he is excellent and he is beautiful. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that so that we can have a ready response to speak of him. And of course, you, many of you are familiar with 1 Peter 3, verse 15, where it says that we, we need to, uh, in our hearts, honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. This is the classic apologetics verse. We need to make a defense for the hope in us. But again, the context is suffering. For believers who suffer, and they're persecuted, and particularly in this context, neighbors see and go, you know what, you're being persecuted and you're being targeted, but you still seem to have joy and you still seem to have hope. Why is that? We need to be ready with a response. Be ready to say why we can still have hope in the midst of persecution. Why we can still have joy in the midst of things getting difficult. And in this, we must put our faith on display. Friends, we live in a secularizing age where the gospel is pushed out of the public square and the true gospel is heard and seen less and less. But we must be a declaring community, exhibiting our faith and speaking of it whenever we can. The gospel must be on our lips. Our friends, our neighbors, our family, our coworkers must hear the good news. They're not going to hear it from anywhere else but from the followers of Jesus Christ, from the church, the bride of Christ. So may God strengthen us to be prepared 
to give our defense for the hope that is in us. The fifth thing that First Peter gives us is that the priority is that we must enact our submission. Enact our submission. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this except to notice the reality that Peter spends a lot of time in the book of First Peter on submission. You know, it's kind of the S word today. You don't really talk about submission in a public context. Um, and yet the Bible is unashamed about submission and neither should we be ashamed of it. And particularly, there's four main arenas that he talks about submission. He talks about submission in society to governing institutions. He talks about submission in what I would equate to the, our modern workplace. It's really about slaves and masters in the first century. He talks about submission in marriage and then submission in the church that he talks about in chapter 5. Chapter 2, verse 13, begins this section where he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This idea of submission for the Lord's sake. We submit in order to glorify and honor the Lord. Now, if you were with us the last hour during our Shepherding Sunday, we addressed some of the issues of submission as it relates to our current issues in our society today. And again, we don't have time to get into it deep this morning, but it's definitely clear that we should obey the governing authorities as long as they are not commanding us to disobey the word of God or prohibiting us from disobeying the word of God. Now, we live in the United States. We're a democratic republic. That's not the context that First Peter was written. And so there's complexities to our current situation. The Constitution is what governs our nation, and there are public servants who are elected to uphold that law. And so, and so I believe there are legitimate concerns in our land about the abuse of power and whether or not officials have the authority to do what they are doing. And there's room for debate within the Christian church on these issues, but the point is that everyone needs to act according to their consciences, to seek to obey the word of God. And that means that if it goes against your conscience, you're thinking you're disobeying God by doing this, then you need to refrain from doing that. The point is that no matter the circumstances, circumstances we should seek to have a submissive spirit as best we can. Now, slaves and masters are not directly equivalent to our employer-employee. That is clear. But there are some points and some principles that can be gleaned from it. And the point that Peter raises here in verses 18 through 25 is simply that no matter who is over you in authority, you should seek to be submissive, even if it's in an unjust situation. Now today, if we're in an unjust situation in the workplace, we can change jobs. Obviously, a slave isn't in that same kind of position. But he points to Jesus as the example. Jesus suffered unjustly. Therefore, we can suffer unjustly as well. Jesus is our example. In chapter 3, he turns to talk about submission in marriage, that wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. He highlights the fact that the wives hold a special place to be able to submit to their husbands, even if their husbands are not Christians. They might win them to Christ. And then he addresses the husbands in verse 7, speaking that the husbands must live with their wives in an understanding way. And then in chapter 5, he speaks about elders who shepherd the congregation and those who are under the elders to uh, submit to them in humility and therefore submission to be in the church as well. And so, if we're to pick up the message of 1 Peter, we need to recognize that part of our witness in this world today, part of us being faithful and being a courageous community, is also to, to live submissively in the arenas that God has called us. These must be priorities for us because the Bible presents them as priorities. Peter has made a big deal of submission in this letter, and submission must be a big deal for us as well. The sixth 
priority we pick up from this letter is to expect suffering. Six, expect suffering. Friends, we, it's so easy for us in our, in our wealthy culture to think that the norm is living comfortably. And for decades, what's called the health and wealth gospel has been preaching a false gospel, that if you simply follow Jesus and you give some money, that life's gonna go well for you and that you're not gonna experience anything bad or anything, any suffering. But this is a truly a false gospel. It lines the pockets of false teachers and it's foreign to the New Testament. I just direct you to 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Friends, do you recognize how countercultural that is? That we are not to be surprised when suffering comes upon us as something strange? Suffering isn't supposed to be strange. We're to expect it. We're to know it's coming. Number one, we recognize uh, Genesis 3. We live in a fallen world. There's sin that racks this world, and therefore sin, destruction, suffering has entered this world and has been there since Genesis chapter 3. And so we understand body pains. We understand why there is suffering in just a plain physical sense, why we lose loved ones. But we also understand why suffering comes as Christians because Christ suffered. Christ says, the world hated me first, they're gonna hate you as well. They persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you. We have no reason to be surprised and, and that's why Peter even says, you shouldn't be. You can totally expect it. Now we love our comfort, we love our safety. None of us want to welcome this kind of suffering and pain. But we can at least expect it. We can know that it is coming. And thus we can commit ourselves to the Lord, asking for his strength to see that we would suffer faithfully. That's where he ends in chapter four. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Friends, we entrust ourselves to God. He is, we are suffering according to his will. And therefore, we can continue to do good to those who are around us. Friends, again, I don't know where our, our nation is headed. I don't know where our culture is going. The signs don't look good. And the possibility for us to suffer for our faith is, I believe, now more real in this day and age than it ever has been in this nation. And we've got to prepare for that. We've got to recognize that comes with the territory that Jesus called us to count the cost. That if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to take up our cross and follow him. And that might mean destroyed family relationships, destroyed job opportunities, there's a cost. But, Jesus, but Peter here says to rejoice. And, and Jesus told us to, to leap for joy because our reward is great in heaven. Because remember, we're exiles and we're sojourners. The seventh and final principle I want us to see this morning is to express our love. Express our love. We're talking a lot about our individual and how we live in this world. This final point that Peter makes is that we as a church have got to be all about loving one another. The bonds of love within Foothill Bible Church have got to grow stronger and stronger as the days go on. We cannot allow those bonds to weaken. We cannot allow us to neglect one another. But our love for each other has got to intensify. Look in just want you to see his, his theme, his priority of this. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter 3, 8, he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Can you imagine the community of people that have a humble mind, have sympathy, brotherly love, have unity of mind? And that's a place I want to be a part of. It's a place I want to join and I want to be arm in arm linked up with the people that, that, are, that are fundamentally for one another and love each other more than they love themselves. He continues this theme in chapter four, verse eight. He, 
He's just said, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, above all, we must continue earnestly loving one another, showing hospitality without grumbling serving one another with the strength that God supplies so that he receives the glory all to him and the dominion forever and ever. It's a fundamental for us being a courageous community and us living boldly for Christ in this age is that we are a tight family and that we express our love for one another that we don't just see ourselves as attenders to this church, that we don't just see ourselves as people who sit passively and simply receive the ministry of this church, but we're actively involved pursuing other people and we're showing hospitality. This is a family in which we're serving each other, not a selected few serving the masses, but the masses serving each other. This is how the New Testament envisions the church, friends. And we have got to continue to recapture that more and more as our days go on. We must be a tight family that expresses our love. We can't pull into ourselves. We've got to push out to love and serve each other. I know we've moved through these priorities quickly. But I pray that it gives your heart hope. And it encourages your conviction to live boldly for Christ in these days. Wherever you might be, whatever places God puts you, we have the resources in the scriptures and from our sovereign triune God to live boldly and honorably for Jesus Christ. And I pray that the Lord would equip us to live more faithfully for him as we see these priorities in our own lives. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our God, we cry out to you because we are your children. We indeed are exiles and sojourners. Forgive us, Lord, if we have grown too comfortable with our home here, too comfortable with the things of this life, seeking to draw joy and lasting satisfaction from that which only disappoints. Father, we know that you will strengthen your own. Father, to pile up these seven priorities can be a daunting task. We feel inadequate. We know we fail often. But we thank you that you are a gracious God and that you come alongside us, empowering us by your spirit to live the lives that you've called us to live. We thank you for that grace that is inexhaustible and that we know will be fully revealed on that future day. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.